Our sermon text is Ruth chapter 4. This morning, if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to open with me to Ruth chapter 4. This will be our final sermon in the book of Ruth. If you remember from last week, we saw how uh, Naomi hatched a scheme in order to get Boaz to redeem them. And we saw how uh, Ruth and Boaz acted faithfully in the midst of a compromising situation. And Boaz promised to redeem um, and so now in chapter 4, we see how things play out. We see the conclusion to our book and what Boaz does to fulfill his promise. So let us now read God's word from Ruth chapter 4 and pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word, starting in verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and, sat, and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders of, and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the, land, from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah, and may you may, and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went to her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood said, uh, gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez, Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, 
Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord. Let us seek his help in prayer. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for revealing to us your will for our salvation in your word and by your spirit. By your spirit, would you illuminate our minds that we might understand this text and that we might grasp hold of our Savior, Jesus Christ, by faith through this text. And would the meditations of all of our hearts and the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This final chapter of Ruth reminded me of a scene in one of my favorite books, Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. Uh, after the penultimate battle of the book, when all the forces of Sauron came against Gondor, the battlefield was full of debris, bodies, and fire, and there were countless injured soldiers. And among the injured are three key characters who all are close to death. The houses of healing were full of the injured, and one woman who worked in the house of healing said, would that there were kings in Gondor as there were once upon a time. For it is said in old lore, the hands of a king are the hands of a healer and so the rightful king could ever be known. Little did she know that their uh, king, the, the heir to their throne, was sitting just outside the gate, and so he was persuaded to come in. He went to the house of healing and quickly healed the three key characters who were injured. And news spread around the city of the healing, and all the sick and injured were brought to him, and he spent the whole night healing them. And the city was stirred, and word was spread that the king had come. See, Aragorn was revealed to be king of Gondor because he was a healer, a restorer. If you remember from last week, Ruth went to Boaz the Redeemer and proposed marriage to him. He promised to redeem, but he spoke of a complication. He said that there was a relative who was more closely related to Naomi who had the first right of refusal to redeem them. And now in chapter 4, Boaz acts on his promise. He, he presents the matter to the near Redeemer and he secures redemption from him. And in this narrative, we not only see how God restores Ruth and Naomi through Boaz and a son, but we see how God brings a king to Israel through the, the actions of these Israelites. And like Aragorn, the hands of this Israelite king that was brought to them were the hands of a healer, not healing the injured and sick people, but healing a nation that was almost torn apart by war and, and oppression during the period of the judges. Ruth 4 even teaches us how a king came, not just to heal Israel, but even the whole world. And so we'll see this in our passage in three points. Redemption is secured, a redeemer is born, and the royal line. So we'll begin with our first point. Our passage opens with Boaz sitting at the gate of the city of Bethlehem. The gate was like the town square. It's where all the legal and financial matters were, were conducted. And as he was sitting, he happened to see the other redeemer walking by, the one he talked about in chapter 3, who is more closely related to Naomi. And that's not too surprising that he saw him walking by because, you know, all the farmers would have had to walk through the gates to work in the field on their way, on their way to the fields. But it doesn't seem like Boaz waited very long, and he didn't have to call for him like he had to call for the redeemers. Or rather, the elders. He had to call for the elders to gather them. But he didn't have to do that for the Redeemer. This detail reminds us of when Ruth, by chance, stumbled on the field of Boaz. In other words, the appearance of the other Redeemer seems to happen by chance. He just walks by. But that points us to God's providence. God not only brought Ruth to the feet of her Redeemer, he is also guiding Boaz as he works redemption. So Boaz asked the other Redeemer to sit down at the gate 
And the ESV says that Boaz addressed the man as friend. It says, come here, friend, sit down. But he actually uses a figure of speech. And in Hebrew, it means something like so-and-so, Mr. So-and-so. The KJV translated as such a one. The NET translates as John Doe. And they're just trying to capture that reality that he's nameless. He's not given a name. It's not friend. It's something like so-and-so. And the point is, even though Boaz likely used the man's name, the narrator purposefully omits his name from Boaz's speech. And we'll see why he does this in a few verses. So after bringing Mr. So-and-so to the gate, Boaz uh, summoned 10 elders from the city. And these weren't just older men. Elder was actually an office in the assembly of Israel. They had certain governing and judicial responsibilities, and so Boaz calls them to preside over and act as witnesses in his uh, legal case. And after summoning the court, Boaz presented the matter that he was bringing before them. And remember from chapter 3, Boaz promised Ruth that he would redeem her uh, and Naomi and that he would marry Ruth. And so that's what we're expecting him to say, right? We're expecting him to gather the court and say, I intend to marry Ruth and redeem her and Naomi. But look at what he actually says to those assembled at the gate in verse 3. He says that the part of the field that belongs to Elimelech, Naomi who returned from the land of Moab is selling it. What is he talking about? So far in the book of Ruth, this field has not been mentioned at all. And Boaz presents it as the primary matter of concern. What's going on? Where did this field come from all of a sudden? There are a few possibilities. Uh, we could understand what's happening here to mean that the rights to Elimelech's property passed to Naomi, his widow, and now that she returned from Moab, uh, from Moab she is selling it. But if Naomi owned land in Bethlehem, why was Ruth going to other fields to glean uh, and to get grain? And why were they acting like poor widows if they were actually landowners? It just doesn't make sense if Naomi owned land for them to be acting that way, uh, and to be, to be hungry and poor. And so it's much more likely that before leaving Israel, Elimelech sold his field to fund the trip. That was, it was already sold. And this explains why Naomi and Ruth returned as destitute widows and not as, uh, not as landowners. Instead of literally selling the land, it seems that Boaz refers to the transfer of Naomi's right to redeem Elimelech's land. And so as the closest living relative of Elimelech, it seems Naomi had the first responsibility to buy back what he had previously sold. But since Naomi is obviously a poor widow, she's unable to redeem. So Boaz presents the case to the other relative, saying he could acquire from Naomi the right to redeem the land. And the reason why we haven't heard about the field so far might simply be that this was not a concern of Ruth and Naomi's. You know, they were more concerned about getting a husband than the complexities of land inheritance. But now that they have Boaz seeking their redemption, he knows that in order to redeem them, he needs to redeem their lands too. So he brings up the matter of the field. Boaz goes on in verse 4, saying to Mr. So-and-so, I thought that I would inform you, saying, let him acquire before those seated and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem, then redeem. But if you will not redeem, then tell me that I may know, for there is none except you to redeem, and I am after you. Only at the end of Boaz's first speech does he reveal his ultimate purpose, and he only hints at it. He doesn't make it explicit, but Boaz implies that he desires to redeem the field. Uh, and he intends to do so if the other redeemer declines. 
we can see in this detail that Boaz has crafted his legal proceedings very carefully and very wisely. He knows what he's doing, and he's trying to, to orchestrate things to a specific end, right? Um, he's doing it very craftily and in a wise way. And this is why he brings up the matter of the field first. He knows that this would be desirable for the Redeemer. And the reason why it was so desirable is that in Israel, land was only sold temporarily, um, it, 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 almost like a lease. Every 50 years at the year of Jubilee, uh, land in Israel was supposed to be returned to, the, to its original tribe, clan, and family that owned it. But if Elimelech had no heir, then the redeemer could buy the land permanently. Elimelech had no closer relative that the land would return to at the Jubilee. And so he knew this, right? The other redeemer responded very quickly in verse 4 saying, I will redeem. He knew that, you know, without an heir, this would be permanently his, that the money that he spent to redeem the land uh, would be basically, it would be offset by the fact that he would own it permanently, right? But now that the, the nearer redeemer has agreed, Boaz presents the heart of the matter. He said, in the day that you acquire the field from the hand of Naomi, also Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, you acquire her to establish the name of the dead over his inheritance. Boaz withheld this crucial piece of information until the end, not an accident or to trick the other redeemer, but to force his hand, to put him in a place where, where he had to say no to the redemption. Because Mr. So-and-so had already agreed uh, to redeem Naomi's land, only thinking about the profit he could have gained from it, right? But now Boaz presents a complication. The land was not the only concern. There was also a young woman tied to the land whom the redeemer must also marry. But why was Ruth tied to the land? Why couldn't Boaz have just married Ruth and forgotten about the field? Well, we obviously aren't as familiar with the practical outworking of Israelite law as Boaz was, so we can assume he knew what he was doing. And what he was doing was he was tying two family obligations together. One was the Redeemer's responsibility to buy back family land and keep, it, uh, keep hereditary land within the family. And the other was the, the Redeemer's responsibility to care for destitute family, including the obligation to marry a deceased relative's widow. And that, that last one is reminiscent of the Israelite practice of leveret marriage, which you can see in Deuteronomy 25. It's where, where a, a brother is commanded to marry the widow of a deceased brother in order to give an heir to his brother. You can see how that works out in practice in Genesis 38. One of Judah's sons married Tamar, but he died without an heir. So his brother was obligated to marry Tamar to provide her, uh, her uh, with food and clothing and protection, but also to provide an heir for his brother. This is a lot like what Boaz said to the Redeemer. The purpose of marrying Ruth was to give an heir to the deceased husband and, and her father-in-law. It was to establish the name of the dead over his inheritance. But this is a little bit different than leveret marriage because only a brother was legally obligated to marry the widow of a deceased brother, according to Mosaic law. And since they weren't brothers, it seems that Mr. So-and-so would have had a moral obligation to marry Ruth, but not a legal one. And this would have been normally voluntary, but now that the other redeemer has already agreed to redeem the land, his hand is forced. To redeem the land without providing an heir would be shameful. But if he did buy back the land and provide an heir through Ruth, the money he spent to redeem the land would, be, would come from his own family wealth. 
His own inheritance would decrease the price of redemption. The heir he produced uh, for Elimelech would inherit the field when he came of age, and it would no longer be uh, his field. The money he spent would be, would be gone. But if the Redeemer decided to, to redeem the land and not marry Ruth, Boaz could have likely still married Ruth, and the children that Boaz had with Ruth would be the rightful heirs to the land uh, that the Redeemer bought back with his own inheritance. And so he's caught in, in, a, in a tangle of possibilities, a tangle of things that could uh, damage his inheritance, things that just wouldn't be ideal for his own uh, financial welfare. And so the Redeemer knows all these legal and financial implications, and he weighed his options and just decided to back out of the redemption altogether. He said in verse 6, I'm not able to redeem for myself, lest I ruin my inheritance. You redeem for yourself my right of redemption, for I'm not able to redeem. Here we see this other redeemer, this Mr. So-and-so's character. He was acting selfishly. He only had his inheritance, wealth, his well-being in mind. Instead of fulfilling his responsibility as a redeemer, whose purpose was to bring family out of hardship, he was trying to use the custom of redemption in Israel to benefit himself, to profit himself. We can also see the irony behind the title given to him by the narrator. By calling him Mr. So-and-so, the narrator emphasizes his namelessness. And that's because the man who was so concerned to preserve his own name, his own inheritance, is left without a name in Israel's history. He had the chance for his name to be remembered forever, even included in the royal family tree, but he gave up that chance because he was concerned for his own inheritance. And so Boaz's crafty legal maneuvering worked just as he planned. He pinned the Redeemer in a corner and effectively secured redemption for Naomi and Ruth. And to ratify this transaction, we're told in verses 7 and 8 about a custom in Israel. One man would take off his sandal and give it to the other man. And that sounds strange to us. We might not understand that. But it's similar to our practice of shaking hands to ratify a transaction, right? It doesn't do anything, but it symbolizes our agreement to the transaction. And so Mr. So-and-so did this in verse 8. He took off his sandal and gave it to Boaz, confirming that Boaz had acquired the right of redemption from him. And this not only confirms that Ruth is a historically reliable account, it's giving us these particular historical details, but it also affirms that Boaz did everything above board. He did everything legally and in the sight of many witnesses. He legally obtained the transfer of redemption from the near redeemer, and he confirmed it with this customary symbolic action. And so nobody could doubt his right to redeem. In light of this, Boaz addressed the men he had assembled at the gate and called them to act as witnesses, and then he concluded the suit. He, he declared that he has acquired the land belonging to Elimelech and his sons, and that he had acquired Ruth as his wife in order to continue the line of Elimelech and his sons. And Boaz's actions are contrasted sharply with Mr. So-and-so's actions. Boaz was performing the role of redeemer as it was t intended to be. He was being selfless. He was only thinking of the good of Ruth and Naomi. He was not thinking of his own good. He wasn't trying to use the custom of redemption to pad his own inheritance. He was doing it to redeem. He was being selfless and generous. And so the men that Boaz had gathered responded in verses 11 and 12, saying, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the wife who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, who both built up the house of Israel. And may you prosper in Ephrathah, and may, your name, and may you be named in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, 
whom Tamar bore to Judah from the offspring that the Lord will give you from this young woman. These witnesses go beyond their legal obligation. They actually bless Boaz and Ruth, and their blessing is a prayer that God would make Boaz and Ruth a patriarch and a matriarch in Israel, just like Rachel, Leah, and Perez. And even though they never knew it, this blessing is actually prophetic. We see why in our second point, a redeemer is born. Now that the legal matters have been settled, the narrative moves very rapidly. We see over nine months covered in just one verse. Verse 13 says, Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went to her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. This verse contains the, only the second direct act of God in the whole book of Ruth. Remember the first was in 1-6 when God ended the famine in Israel and gave food to his people. And because we saw this detail when God ended the famine, it, it showed us that God sent the famine to begin with, right? He sent the famine as punishment. And we can learn something similar from God's actions in opening Ruth's womb. If he opened it, it, it suggests that he also closed, closed it. Remember in chapter one, we learned that Ruth and Orpah were barren. They were married to Malon and Kilion for many years and they never bore children. And like famine, barrenness was a punishment from God on Israel. Both are included in the list of curses that God would send on Israel to punish disobedience. And you can see that in Deuteronomy 28. And so just as God ended his punishment in 1-6 by sending food to Israel, here God ends Ruth's barrenness. He opens her womb. But I want to be very clear. We're not under the Mosaic Covenant like Ruth was. Ruth may have suffered under barrenness as a punishment, but that's not the case for us. We don't suffer for our sins in that way. We aren't punished in that way. Since we are not under the Mosaic Covenant, our experience of closed wombs is part of our life in the sinful fallen world. It's a consequence for sin, but not for your specific sin. It's a consequence of sin entering the world in Genesis 3. For us, unlike for Israel, problems with fertility are part of that general judgment that God placed on Eve when he said that there will be pain in childbearing. That means more than just physical pain. It includes struggles with infertility. But even though God doesn't send barrenness as a curse on us like he did under the Mosaic Covenant, doesn't mean that he doesn't open wombs like he did for Ruth. God providentially gives conception whenever it occurs according to his wisdom. Just like in the book of Ruth where we're only told about two direct acts of God, we may not see God acting directly in our lives, but he is upholding and governing all creation. And that includes you and your hardships, your infertility, your pain, God is with you. He is watching over you. He's working according to his wisdom and his love for you. And so walk by faith and not by sight, knowing that our outward circumstances are not a measure of God's love for us. That's what Ruth did. She was walking by faith and not by sight when she loved everything she knew and loved and followed Naomi. She was walking by faith even as she gleaned in the fields of Boaz and proposed marriage to him in a very compromising situation. And finally, in this last chapter, we see her faith becoming sight. The God that she has entrusted herself to, the Lord of Israel, has given her a son. In response to this gift of a son, the women of Bethlehem joined the elders in lifting up their voices in blessing and praise. But they addressed this blessing to Naomi and not Ruth. And this brings to mind what happened when Naomi first returned to Bethlehem in chapter 1. 
When the women of Bethlehem first saw her, they asked in shock, is this Naomi? They knew who she was, but they couldn't believe it was her because her appearance had taken on the grief and loss that she had experienced. But now at the end of the book, the women speak to Naomi again, but this time they bless her and praise the Lord for his faithfulness. They said in verses 14 and 15, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. This blessing marks the resolution in the book of Ruth. Remember, the main problem is Naomi and Ruth's widowhood and childlessness. And here we, le- we learn that the Lord has solved this problem through Boaz and Ruth's son. Ruth is married and their son is born. They're no longer widowed and childless. Ruth has found rest, and a son has been born, not just to Ruth, but even to Naomi. But why do the women say this to Naomi and not Ruth, and and who are they calling a redeemer? The redeemer could obviously be be Boaz, but it could also be the Lord, who was mentioned just uh, right before, or it could even be the son who is born. To answer these questions, remember what happened at the beginning of the book. Naomi didn't just lose her husband, she also lost her two sons. And remember that Boaz married Ruth to carry on the the family line of Naomi's deceased husband and sons. And so when Ruth and Boaz had a son, he was their son, but he was also legally Naomi's son. He was replacing the two sons she had previously lost, and that's why the women bless Naomi. And this is why they say the Lord has not left her without a redeemer. They're calling the son a redeemer, the same son that they say will be a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. He's a redeemer, a restorer, and a nourisher because by replacing her two lost sons, he is reversing Naomi's fortune. Remember in 121, Naomi said that she left Bethlehem full, but the Lord had brought her back empty. Well, here we see that the Lord has filled her again by giving her this son. And in, in 120, Naomi told the women not to call her Naomi, which means pleasant, but to call her Mara, which means bitter. But here, the Lord has made the bitter one pleasant again. And Naomi seems to acknowledge this reversal. In verse 16, she takes the boy, puts him on her lap, and becomes his nanny. She's no longer bitter. She's no longer passively waiting at home while Ruth does all the work. She is joyfully taking care of her grandson. And this confirms the connection between the loss of Naomi's son and the birth of this son. The word translated in the verse as child or boy occurs one other time in Ruth, in 1.5, where uh, we're told that Naomi was left without her two boys. At the beginning of the story, Naomi's running away from God and she's bereft of her two sons. But at the end of the story, the Lord has turned her around, brought her back to Bethlehem, and he has given her a boy on her lap. And this wasn't just any boy. Finally, in verse 17, we're told his name. We read, And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And so the blessing of the elders in verses 12 and 13 were prophetic because through Obed, Ruth and Boaz became pillars in Israel. They built up the house of Israel with their son. The Lord didn't just provide a son, he provided them with the grandson of King David. We see the significance of this in our third point, the royal line. The book of Ruth ends with a genealogy. 
And I'm sure that seems boring to a lot of us. I know many of us have a rocky relationship with biblical genealogies and that many Bible-in-a-year reading plans have seen their demise in the book of Numbers or First Chronicles. But genealogies are vital. When we come across them, they force us to slow down and consider God's providential care for his people. And that's because not only was God providentially orchestrating Obed's birth, but every name in a genealogy is the result of God's wise and loving providence. Every genealogy, God opens wombs and gives conception. He ensures that his church never dies out. The other main purpose of a genealogy is to make connections. Many people miss this fact and they try to calculate the age of the earth or the age of certain periods of biblical history, but that's not the purpose of genealogies. Some give very broad overviews, some are more detailed, but the purpose of every genealogy, besides showing God's ongoing providence, is to connect early generations with later ones, to connect prominent figures to earlier figures, or to connect a historical account with the broader biblical history. That's what we see in Ruth 4. This is not an anticlimactic, boring ending to an otherwise intriguing book. This teaches us how important the seemingly mundane events of Ruth are. Because people were married and sons were born all the time in Israel. We can even assume that this wasn't the only time someone was redeemed. But the reason why Ruth's marriage and Naomi's redemption were included in scripture is the role they played in redemptive history. The people and events of Ruth are not only connected with Israel's beginnings, but even with the climax of the kingdom of Israel, the birth of King David. And this shows us that the problem in Ruth was more significant than it might have seemed at first. No doubt there were many childless widows in Israel's history, but Naomi and Ruth's widowhood and childlessness were significant enough to include in scripture because they were the king's great and great-great-grandmother. The problem in the book of Ruth was greater than just widowhood and childlessness, although that was certainly a big problem, but rather, at the end of the book, the genealogy shows us that the widowhood of Naomi and Ruth could have meant the end of the line of King David. As, as early as Genesis 49, the line of Judah was prophesied to be the royal line in Israel. And Elimelech was a key member of that line of Judah. And so the prophecy in Genesis 49 that the king's scepter would not depart from Judah was hanging in the balance in the book of Ruth. That, that royal line could have been stamped out because of their widowhood and childlessness. Remember, a key lesson in Ruth is God's providence in the lives of his people, especially caring for and protecting the poor and the widows. But in this genealogy, God reveals his long-term providence for the nation of Israel, his chosen people. And this reveals to us the purpose of the book of Ruth. Ruth helps explain and legitimize David's right to the throne. See, it was probably known that David's great-great-grandmother was a Moabitess, and it is possible that some Israelites looked down on that fact. They questioned his right to the throne because he had Moabite blood. But the book of Ruth shows that her place, that, that, that Ruth's place in uh, David's genealogy was legitimate. Ruth was, uh, Ruth the Moabite, the Moabitess legally married an Israelite, and she did so to carry on the family name of an important family in Israel. The elders of Israel even gave their assent and blessed the marriage between Boaz and Ruth the Moabitess. So if anyone had questions concerning David's genealogy and why he was fit to be king even with Moabite blood, Ruth shows us that this was nothing to sneer at. 
Not only was the marriage between Boaz and Ruth legal and legitimate, but the whole story of Ruth commends to us the character of Ruth and Boaz. In every chapter, we have seen how Ruth acted righteously and piously. She wasn't just a decent Moabitess. She was a convert who devoted herself to the God of Israel. Likewise with Boaz, he wasn't being unfaithful by marrying a Moabitess. In every chapter, Boaz acts faithfully and piously, including in his marriage to Ruth. So Ruth elevates David by connecting him to historical figures that were characterized by their faithfulness and their piety. But remember why Boaz and Ruth's faithfulness is significant. They lived during the period of the judges when Israel was characterized by covenant breaking and sin. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes because there was no king. But the king's ancestors did not fall into the disobedience of Israel. David's great-grandparents were not evil like many of their contemporaries. Rather, in a dark period of Israel's history, they were a light of righteousness. And this is ultimately what the book of Ruth teaches us. Not just God's providence in the life of Ruth and Naomi, but God's providence in the life of the nation of Israel. Ruth shows us how God providentially cared for and protected his holy nation during a time of darkness when God's people constantly disobeyed him. During one of the darkest times in Israel's history, God was not only providentially carrying his people through to the other side, but he was actually bringing about the ultimate solution to their disobedience. Remember how the book of Judges put it, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right and hit their own eyes. In Ruth, we see God's solution to that problem. He provides a king for Israel to lead them in doing what is right in God's eyes. A king who, like his, like his grandparents, was characterized by righteousness and devotion to the Lord, who is a man after God's own heart. Ruth teaches us that God providentially worked through the sinful and tumultuous period of the judges to bring a redeemer to Israel, a king who would heal a war-torn nation. If that was true for Israel 3,000 years ago, then that is true for you today. God cares for us even in the darkest seasons of our lives. If it feels like we just can't get rid of a specific sin, or if it feels like we're just keep getting hit with loss and pain and suffering, remember that God has not abandoned you. Just like he did not abandon Israel during their darkness, he has not abandoned you when you face darkness. Even when you are walking through the valley of the shadow of death, God is with you, comforting and guiding you with his rod and staff. He is providentially ordering your life according to his wisdom and his love for you, working out his wise plan even through difficulty and pain. So when you do face dark seasons of life like Israel, when you face the grief of loss like Ruth and Naomi, when it seems like everything is going wrong, trust in the Lord. Just like he cared for Naomi and Ruth and all Israel during darkness and brought them out to the other side, he will do the same for you. Just like the events of the book of Ruth were not random circumstances, so the circumstances of your life are according to God's wise plan. Trust in his wisdom and his love for you and his power to work out his plan. Trust in God to redeem you out of darkness because he redeemed Naomi and Ruth out of darkness and even the whole nation of Israel. Of course, Israel's darkness was being lost in their sin and God's punishment. They were lost without a king over them and rightly deserved God's wrath. But God sent them a king to redeem them from sin and death, and this is also true for you and me. By nature, we were lost in darkness of our sin and the consequences of our sin, which is death. 
When Adam fell into sin by eating the forbidden fruit, all humanity fell with him. Humanity entered into a period of, uh, of uh, a period like the period of the judges in Israel. Everybody has done what is right in his own eyes since Genesis 3. Everyone has been lost in the darkness of our own disobedience and death. We've been lost without a king. But God sent us a king to redeem us once and for all from our sin and misery. And this is what the book of Ruth is all about. Because the royal genealogy did not stop with David. We see it continued in Matthew 1. David was the father of Solomon, and Solomon the ancestor of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. My friends, this is the real significance of the book of Ruth. It is certainly about God's providence for widows and for the Davidic line, but even more importantly, it's about God's providence for the Messianic line. All throughout Israel's history, even in the book of Ruth, God was working out his plan of redemption. He was bringing families together, giving conception, bringing sons and daughters into the world so that his own son could come into the world, redeem his people, and save them from sin and death. Ruth teaches us about the solution to Israel's problem of not having a king, but even more importantly, Ruth teaches us about God's solution to all humanity's problem of not having a king. Because just like David was more than a king, but also a redeemer who brought Israel out of darkness, so David's greater son is both a king and a redeemer. And we see a picture of Christ's redemption in Ruth. The whole system of redemption in the Mosaic law was a type and shadow of Christ's redeeming work. It teaches us about what Christ did to redeem us. And in Ruth, we get the only full picture of what a redeemer did in Israel. So Ruth most clearly and fully teaches us about Christ's redemption. Look again at what Boaz did to redeem Ruth and Naomi. A redeemer was responsible for bringing his people, uh, for bringing his family out of hardship. He had to deliver his relatives out of distress to restore them to health and safety, to protect them and provide for them. And Boaz did this in chapter two by commanding his young men to not touch Ruth and by providing abundant food for her. He did this in chapter 3 by treating Ruth with dignity and chastity in a compromising situation, not taking advantage of her, but promising to redeem her. Boaz did this in chapter 4 by quickly securing redemption, obeying all the laws of Moses, and ensuring everything was done legally and above board. Unlike the closer relative who should have redeemed, Boaz was selfless. He embodied the office of redeemer. He didn't use it for his benefit, but for theirs. And he paid a sacrificial price to redeem Ruth and Naomi. This was a price that the closer relative was unwilling to pay. He even said he would ruin his own inheritance by paying the price of redemption. It would have been a costly price to Boaz, but he willingly and joyfully brought ruin to his own inheritance in order to redeem Ruth and Naomi. This teaches us about Christ's work of redemption. Like Boaz, he paid a costly price, bringing ruin to his own inheritance, emptying himself of all his riches, becoming poor, taking on the form of a servant, and sacrificing his very life. And like Boaz, Jesus made his sacrifice willingly and joyfully. He was not forced. It's not to say it wasn't without pain or agony, but Christ willingly died on the cross. He said that no one took his life, but he laid it down of his own accord. And for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Like Boaz, Christ acted selflessly, thinking not of his own good, but only of the good of the people he was redeeming. 
His redemption was not self-serving like Naomi's closer relative. He did everything for the good of his sheep because he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And like Boaz, Jesus accomplished his redemption by obeying the Mosaic law. He perfectly obeyed God's will. He perfectly fulfilled the entire law. While Boaz was a concrete embodiment of the Redeemer in Israel, Jesus is the fulfillment of the office of Redeemer. Every Redeemer and every law about redemption was pointing to Jesus. And while David was the embodiment of the redeeming king in Israel who came to bring them out of the darkness of the judges, Jesus is the fulfillment of the redeeming king. David brought temporary redemption to Israel, bringing them out of the darkness of the period of judges, but Jesus brought ultimate redemption to his people. Like Boaz, David was a sinner in need of redemption, but Jesus was sinless. Boaz and David were only able to redeem from temporary darkness, but Jesus redeemed his people from the eternal darkness of sin and death. And he did so by sacrificing his very life for us. And so let us run in faith to the greater son of Boaz and Ruth, and let us put ourselves in his hands, for the hands of our king are the hands of a healer. Let's pray. Our King and Redeemer, we give you thanks for teaching us about your work of redemption, for giving these types and shadows in which we can see you. We thank you for the book of Ruth in which you reveal to us the way you brought our Redeemer and King into the world. We praise you for sending Jesus into the world to save us from darkness, paying the ultimate price to redeem us. By your Holy Spirit, strengthen our faith in Jesus and make us willing and able to imitate his selfless and joyful service to others. And as we prepare to give gifts for the furtherance of your church, would you stir generosity in our hearts, enable us to give joyfully and bless these gifts to the advancement of your gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.